Good day and welcome to Letters and Politics. I'm Mitch Jezerich, and I'm very happy to welcome to back to the radio program today Edward J. Watts to talk about his new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Edward J. Watts is a classical historian, as well as the Alcaviades Vasiliades Endowed Chair and Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego. He has joined us in the past to talk about previous books, such as Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, and The Final Pagan Generation. He joins me via Zoom. Edward Watts, it is a great pleasure, sir, to welcome you back to this program. Thank you so much, Mitch. I really enjoy being back, and I'm so glad we can do this. As am I. Uh, The title, again, of your latest book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome. Talk to me about the idea of decline and how it's used generally in politics. I think that the interesting thing about the idea of decline, this is something that is a way of encapsulating a sense that change is occurring and it's change that people are uncomfortable with. And what prompted me to, to really consider this book is the idea that you know we're seeing this quite frequently in our society where people are evoking this idea of decline. And what it really means is I can explain why you are uncomfortable and I can do things that can try to fix this. But it's an opportunistic political tool where someone who is looking to disrupt society, in essence, is declaring a sort of emergency uh, and saying that the normal social order can and maybe should be suspended so that this really profound problem that's making people uncomfortable can be addressed. And it's so urgent that it cannot be addressed in the normal processes that the society would use. It instead is something that maybe requires suspending those processes, maybe even taking people's rights away. And what's interesting in Roman history, this is in a sense the cadence to which change moves in the Roman state. Um, The Roman state lasts for 2,200 years. Roman literature starts for us um, around the year 200 BC. And already in one of the very first authors that we have texts from, he's making fun of politicians trying to use this idea. Uh, And so it's there from the beginning in Rome. And it continues. It's a, it's a, comedy by a playwright named Plautus. And he's talking about uh, a kind of moralistic blowhard who comes in and talks about how everyone is, you know, they're not behaving virtuously and everyone is devoted to luxury. Uh, And this is a very interesting moment in Roman history because it's just after Rome has won the Second Punic War. Um, And in the Second Punic War, Rome endured incredible austerity, not by choice, but because it was fighting a conflict and then struggling for its survival. And so as Rome comes out of the Second Punic War, all of a sudden, the purse strings are loosened, the the austerity is done, uh, and people start enjoying themselves. And you have a group of people in Rome who complain that, you know, we won the Punic War because we were virtuous. And now we're doing these things that are crazy and not virtuous at all. Um, And my favorite critique of of that entire moment is uh, in 189 BC, so just after Plautus writes this play, uh, there is a victory that the Romans win um, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And in the triumphal procession celebrating this victory, they bring back pedestal tables, tables with one leg. And this, to Roman moralists, is a sign of the decline of Rome, because now tables don't have four legs. They have one leg. And only the decadent have a table with one leg. Uh, And so you step back and you realize this is absurd. But that idea is used to justify things like expelling people from the Senate. It's even eventually used to justify things like kicking Greeks out of the city of Rome because they're seen as a a malevolent influence on what would be traditionally Roman virtue. It's interesting, and you brought this to my attention in a previous conversation— but now whenever I hear about the Punic Wars, this, these are the wars, three wars altogether, between Rome and Carthage in the ancient, during the ancient times. And this is what would really transcend Rome into being the power of the Mediterranean world. Carthage was sort of that before. Rome replaces it and expands that power. I always saw a parallel of what happened to Rome and what you're describing here, what happened to Rome after these Punic Wars to almost what has happened to the United States after World War II? 
I think that's a great parallel. And it's something that I think Romans would, I would agree with. Um, there's a story that Romans tell um, in the, in the Republic in particular, uh, where they see the, the height of the Republic, the most successful moments of the Republic occurring during the second Punic war, when Rome was fighting Hannibal, when the society comes together, it, it accepts all of these austerity measures. It accepts basically a, a societal um, dedication to do anything possible to win this war. Um, it enrolls 70% of all the people eligible for military service in the army. Um, Romans don't eat so they can fight this war. And when you read Roman historians of the first century BC, even some from the second century BC, they say effectively, well, once Carthage was defeated, Rome stopped being serious. Uh, they stopped focusing on doing the right thing and coming together to address uh, common problems. And instead, they became less moral, less virtuous. There was a decline that came about simply because Rome had no rival. And I think you can see after World War II a sense that the United States loses also its commitment to this kind of austerity and coming together for a common purpose. But I think you're also seeing among some historians uh, a realization that the end of the Cold War and the loss of the United States' great rival in the Soviet Union also prompted a kind of coming apart of American society. Um, and, you know, in the sense that we don't need to, for example, have foreign policy stop at or have political disputes stop at the shore's edge. Um, but instead, now foreign policy is something that is subject to partisan wrangling um, instead of bipartisan approaches. So I think you're exactly right. Romans would look at our recent history and say, there are things that are familiar to us here. You know, the narrative of decline is something that we could use um, in the same way that Romans use it if we are choosing to do so. Is coming out of these Punic Wars... Is that what starts to get us on the road towards a, a long road, I guess, of decline uh, of, of the Republic? Because Rome, of course, would transition from a Republic into an empire. Yeah, so this is definitely what Roman thinkers are saying. Um, there's other moments that they pick as well, though. And one of the most um, important is a moment that, that Cicero picks, um, where he says that uh, in the aftermath of the Punic Wars, there is this um, growth of populism that arises because of very significant wealth inequality in Rome that starts really becoming a problem in the 140s and 130s BC. And you have a politician who rises to prominence by saying that is the decline of Rome. There are too many people who the rich have forced off their lands and now we can't man our armies. Uh, and so we need to fix this by addressing wealth inequality. And he ends up getting murdered by people who don't support that policy. Um, what Cicero would say is that was the moment where Rome had a choice. It, it could have come together. It could have solved these problems. It chose not to. And that's when the decline starts. Um, and so in the Republic, you have all kinds of people sensing that something is wrong. I mean, really what they're sensing is wrong is a political dynamic has become, instead of cooperative, um, much more competitive, but competitive in a negative way not competing to do the best thing for society, but competing as an individual to do the best thing for you. Uh, and so as the Republic enters into this, this prolonged period of crisis, Republican thinkers start looking back to see where the problems began. And each of them picks a different point. I mean, some do pick the Punic Wars, some pick the murder of Tiberius Gracchus in 133. Um, some of them even pick the uh, Catalinarian Conspiracy in 63 BC. And the Catalinarian Conspiracy is wonderful because this is the thing that terrified America's founding fathers too. Um, you know, that, that we might have our own version of someone within the system trying to overthrow it. And so in the Republic, you have a prolonged political crisis and lots of people looking for an explanation for how that crisis came about their explanation, though, is always keyed to a kind of solution that they want to push forward. And I think that's one of the things that's a common theme in this, this rhetoric of decline. Nobody is saying it for no reason. It's not, an, it's not a dispassionate observation. Um, when people are talking about this, they are talking about it frequently in a way that helps them, either because they are proposing a solution that otherwise wouldn't be possible, or because they're positioning themselves as a voice 
that could contribute to any kind of conversation about how to fix problems in the world around them. Tell me about the role of political violence in this period. And I guess the escalation of, of political violence, which which may be important to, to think about. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing because the Roman Republic, um, when we think about it, we think about it as a political system that actually had a great deal of violence within it. Um, but for the first 300 years, 400 years of the Republic, there is very little political violence. In, in fact, there is no real political violence between the middle part of the 5th century BC and 133 BC when Tiberius Gracchus is killed. Um, and that is something we should wrap our mind around. I mean, the United States has lots of political violence, if that's the measure. I mean, it happens all the time. If the measure is not having anything for 300 years, our history is filled with political violence. Um, and January 6th is not an exception. It's instead sort of consistent or part of a, a pattern in the United States where political expression can be violent. Um, in 133 BC, that political violence shocks Romans. Um, and you have another 10 years where you don't have violence. And then you have another 25 or so where you don't have violence. But each time the Roman state suffers a kind of violent incident, people who are responsible for this or people who observed it learn from it. And I think this is the lesson um, that Americans really need to be sensitive to because the violence in 133 BC is not organized. It's kind of accidental. Um, the people are armed with, you know, clubs and table legs. Um, but 50 years later, the political violence involves armies. It involves trained soldiers. It involves generals like Sulla marching their army on the city of Rome. And it involves massacres of individuals. It's organized. And you can uh, trace so that to decades before where it was not organized. You can watch people get better at it. Um, that's the scary part. You know, when, when this violence shows up in Rome, it shows up because people are really upset and they behave in a way that required very little planning. You know, the, the mob that kills Tiberius Gracchus, some of them are using like table legs and things. They are not prepared for this. This isn't what they plan to do. Um, by the time you get to 100, they are prepared. You know, the, the year 100 sees an election disrupted because one of the people running in it thinks he's going to lose. And so he brings an armed mob into the place where the voting, the vote counting is occurring and kills the person running against him. Um, it's not only evocative to a degree of what January 6th was like, but it also shows a level of much more sophisticated organization and a much more clear set of targets being identified. Um, and so what you see with Roman Roman political violence is this becomes a political technology. Um, it becomes something that people learn how to deploy so they can get what they want in the political system. And politics becomes this mixture of legislation, persuasion, voting, and violence. Um, and that's what the Republic never manages to shake. As a historian of ancient Rome, and there are many different ways to see things, right? There's no just one way or one angle. And I'm sure other Roman history, I'm sure you all disagree with each other a lot about all kinds of stuff. <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to ask you, how, how do you, as a, a historian of ancient Rome, how, how, do you, how did you view and look upon what happened at the United States Capitol on January 6th? Um, with great alarm. Uh, I think that the, the concern that I had largely consisted of a couple things. I mean, first, in Roman history, and particularly in the events around Tiberius Gracchus, that's, Tiberius Gracchus was doing things that involved threatening rhetoric, and that was a new thing for Rome. Um, he, was intimida he was intimidating people. He was surrounding himself with people who looked like thugs. He never ordered them to do physical violence to people. But the rhetoric was violent um, and he was targeting other people. Uh, and so the, the thing that we see with Tiberius Gracchus um, is there's a shift from identifying a social problem and trying to fix it by blaming bad policies. Tiberius Gracchus shifts to blaming the character of people. And so it isn't then about policies, which can be fixed and there are policies can be killed without any consequence. Um, when you start identifying bad people, it's what do you do to those people? 
because those people now become targets. And Tiberius Gracchus made other people targets. He doesn't ever actually use violence against them, but some of the people who felt targeted believed he might. And so they strike first. And I think what we see with, with what I see in December 6th is this rhetoric of targeting other people is something that we saw, um, we first saw this even emerging in the 1990s, but it especially was common um, in the last presidency. And so it's not that far of a step to go to the point where you start taking violent action when you are convinced that the people not performing the actions that you want um, are evil or are wrong or need to be stopped because they're not acting um, in any way that the political system can tolerate. And what I saw on January 6th looked to me like an extension of that rhetoric from threats to actions. Um, and in Rome, once you make that jump, it's very, very hard to pull back, um, especially when people taking those actions die because then you have martyrs. Um, and it's very hard to say that somebody gave their life for a cause uh, and and that cause was not worth it. And that's what happened to Tiberius Gracchus. He was murdered. And I think it's important to point out he was tapping in to, I would see as legitimate anger mm -hmm. over inequality, economic inequality in Rome at this time. Absolutely. And the inequality was serious, it was profound, and it happened quickly. Um, but I think what's interesting about Tiberius Gracchus is he's not proposing a solution that will actually change that. Um, what Tiberius Gracchus is proposing, you know, the, the inequality that, that arose came because a financial sector developed in Rome uh, that made the people who understood that financial system's operations extremely wealthy very quickly. I mean, much the same way that we've seen in the United States from, say, the early 1980s until now. Um, and what Tiberius Gracchus proposed to do was simply to take public land and distribute it to people, but not even all public land, just a section of public land. And so at best, this is going to benefit less than 1% of the families in the entire Roman state. It doesn't solve the problem, but it makes people feel like you're addressing their concerns. And that was the genius of Tiberius Gracchus. Um, he understood that if you fight for people and you fight aggressively for people and you identify villains that the people can um, feel are responsible for causing the problems they don't, that they feel afflicted by, you can become extremely popular without actually doing much to solve the problem you've identified because it's about emotion. Um, it's not about tangible solutions. Uh, and his opponents, of course, realized that he had that power, too. That's part of why he was killed. And the opponents also participated in their own escalation, I guess, of violence as well. Would that be accurate? Yes, yes. Um, once it's in the system, it's, it's like a poison. I mean, it's very hard to get it out. Um, and as people get better at understanding what violence can do and how to tactically deploy it in political conflicts, um, it doesn't leave the system because it's useful. Uh, and regular Romans begin to tolerate it. I mean, everyone in Rome was horrified in 133 that someone had been assassinated. That simply wasn't what Rome did. Um, but by 100, it's part of the way things work. People don't like it, but it's not horrifying in the way that it had been a generation before. Is this just a, a new generation of this is just how it is? I mean, because this, this, this fall of the Roman Republic before a transition into an empire was, was more than 100 years. Yeah. I think it's both a new generation coming to power and being willing to throw away some of the restraints that their elders felt, but then also a gradual acclimation to a politics that functions in that way. Um, you know, I, I think both of us can remember what political discourse was like in the 1980s versus the mid-1990s, and then in the 90s versus, say, the Obama years, and then the Obama years versus the Trump years. Um, and we, we have lived through that, and some of the things that we saw, say, in the last three years um, would be absolutely inconceivable, even in the, the Newt Gingrich mid-1990s. Um, 
And so I think that happened in Rome too, where there were new people coming onto the scene who were willing to do more. They were willing to be more extreme. They were willing to go beyond the limits that their predecessors self-imposed. Um, but then there's also a sense among regular Romans that they just get gradually acclimated to political conditions that in isolation five years ago they would have seen as important. It's interesting. You mentioned earlier we had situations where senators in, in, in the Roman Senate, this is where our own Senate gets its name, the Senate, the Senatus, <laughs> um, were, expelling, were, were able to, to achieve expelling other senators. And there's something I've been thinking a lot about, and if, if I go too much into contemporary politics and you don't want to go there, that, that's okay. Just let me know. I mean, we brought you in for your historical knowledge here. Um, but something that I, I, I just noticed in this escalation of tactics, and even if a tactic is appropriate, I still worry about what it's going to lead to down the road. And what I'm thinking specifically is, A, Earlier in this year, very controversial Republican lawmaker Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia got de uh, she she was kicked out of all of her committee assignments. That's not, and this isn't a defense of her, but but that's not some small thing that you have done because I've worked on Capitol Hill, and yeah. each lawmaker is given a tremendous amount of respect as somebody who represents seven hundred and fifty thousand people their district yeah. and when you denied her the commit access to the committees you were it's it would have also when i worked on the hill in the previous 15 years ago that would have been seen as also denying those 750,000 people um their 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 representation on that committee usually a committee that might deal with a sector of the economy that's important uh to that district and then i see when we had this creation of a select committee to investigate what happened on January 6th, and you could say it was in bad faith for the Republicans to put people like Jim Jordan on, on that committee, who maybe even investigated as part of this committee, but also taken, off, taken out of that committee um, by, by the Democrats at the time. I, I think there's an argument for doing all of that that happened, but as I have observed politics over the years, what goes around comes around mm -hmm. and I can see that escalating and, and happening again in the future in ways that maybe not be so defensible. Yeah. I think that um, if we look at the big picture across Roman history, when there are issues um, and when there are people talking about decline, I think broadly we can say there's kind of three ways that this manifests. Um, in, in one case, there's no real decline to talk about. They manufacture it and they use it for very cynical political reasons. Um, and probably the best example of this is the fall of the Western Roman Empire that's invented not in 476 when supposedly it occurred, but in the 510s by the Emperor Justinian and his courtiers to justify invading Italy. And it took everybody in Italy by surprise because they thought they still lived in the Roman state. So th there is this invention of decline. But then there are real moments where there is something going on that's not good. Um, and there's two ways to respond to that. And one is to try to rally everyone together and identify what people can contribute positively to fix those problems and only ask them to contribute in ways that are positive. Um, and that can make society stronger despite the problems it's facing. But the other way is to have a real problem, um, like the problem Tiberius Gracchus is trying to address. But instead of solving the problem, you target other people. And you make people feel better about an issue by targeting those others. Uh, and you don't make society stronger, you divide it further. And you create precedents for excluding people, for doing things to people, for even in some cases killing people, because you blame them for a problem. And it's more important to punish them than it is to solve the problem. And I think the challenge that we have right now um, in the early stages of the Biden administration is there are real problems. I mean, COVID is a real problem. Mm -hmm. The economic situation in our country is a real problem. The racial dynamics and, and even crime in our country are becoming or are real problems. Um, what do we do? And I think that the initial impact or the initial imp uh, impetus, the initial direction that Biden took was to try to bring everybody together, identify what they could do in a positive way to contribute to the problems, solutions, and make society stronger. 
Um, but then there are people who won't do that. And I think this is the challenge. Um, with Marjorie Taylor Greene, are we abandoning the approach to try to make everyone come together by taking a representative of 750,000 people and removing that person from deliberations about budgets and other issues? Um, are we punishing those voters? Uh, and I think that's the issue. That's, that's the moment we're in where it's not a hundred percent clear what the implications are going to be, but we are setting up precedents that I think could be um, uncomfortable in the future. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's beyond the realm of possibility to imagine that something like January 6th could happen where there actually is a stolen election at some point. And there's a house select committee that refuses to include the, any members of the opposite party that want to investigate this. Um, and we have set a precedent that says you could do that. Um, I think, I think that we really do have to be mindful of these lessons that the Romans give us. This is Letters in Politics, and we are in conversation with Edward J. Watts. He is the author of the book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. He is a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. Would it be fair to say that the chaos that lasted again, I, 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 more than 100 years, that led the way towards ending the Republic and, and forming, and they didn't see it as an empire at, at the time. It's something we look back on and say, this is when you become a, a, an empire. With um, uh, Caesar Augustus, was it, was it looking for somebody who was, and I guess this gets part of what the narrative of the story you're telling is, somebody who's going to come in and bring a sense of, of order back to the from the chaos yeah this is exactly what augustus claims when he takes power i mean augustus is one of the most most challenging figures in all of history to to talk about because a lot of the problems augustus solves as emperor are problems augustus caused as a civil warrior and so the first phase of augustus's regime or of his political career uh shows a figure who is willing to do just about anything to punish opponents i mean kills large numbers of people he confiscates the the property of 19 entire towns to distribute to his supporters um large large numbers of political opponents are disenfranchised and have to go into hiding and he fights civil wars that kill tens of thousands of romans as well uh but then when the civil wars are over he transitions and he rules rome as an autocrat for nearly for over 40 years uh, and during that 40-year span, what Augustus claims he's doing is restoring the Republic, restoring Rome, um, fixing all of the degeneration that you saw in the later Republic, but also fixing all the damage that was done in the civil wars. He doesn't ever take responsibility for causing it, but he takes um, he claims credit for fixing it. Uh, and so with Augustus, when he's talking, when he's fighting the civil wars, he's using a rhetoric of decline, saying that there are all of these problems in Rome. Um, I am the only way to fix this. I am the only one who can protect Rome from, you know, say the attacks of Cleopatra and Antony. Um, I am the only one who can rebuild the infrastructure of the cities that have been damaged in, in, these warf in this warfare. But once he's emperor, what he claims to have done is restored the Republic, even though it's now an autocracy. It's not a representative democracy. Um, he claims that he's restored the moral order of the Roman state even though the things that bothered people in the 40s BC before Augustus took power are not the things that he fixes. Instead, he fixes sexual morality, which wasn't a big concern for people in the 40s. Um, and so what Augustus is doing is claiming a restoration that fixes decline, but it's not the decline that people would have identified. Um, and some of the decline that he fixes, he caused. And so what you see there is a kind of very... Um, in some ways, very constructive second act, because the political system he sets up survives in various, after various evolutions for almost 1500 years. I mean, it is one of the most successful political revolutions in history. Um, but at the same time, there's a tremendous cost. 
Uh, and the rhetoric behind it is a rhetoric that is kind of disingenuous. It's a rhetoric of restoring things that in some cases were never really lost. Um, and in other cases, were damaged or destroyed by the person claiming to restore them himself. It is interesting to think about how Caesar Augustus claimed that he was restoring the Republic when today most historians, maybe there's debate about this, but most historians look at that period and what he did specifically as ending the Republic. Yeah, and I, I think that there are people who will say, well, Augustus continued to have elections, and he did. Um, but it just was very clear to everybody, you could run for election if Augustus didn't approve of it. Um, there were still votes in all of the different assemblies, um, but it was also clear that you weren't going to vote for something, unless he didn't really care. Um, you weren't going to vote for something the emperor didn't approve of. Uh, and so the charade of an active republic is still there. All the officers are still elected, all of the assemblies still meet, there's still elections, there's voting. Um, but the actual decision is made by one person, and that person never leaves. And that's a key difference from the Republic. In the Republic, the principle was everybody shared power with a colleague, and everybody cycled through offices every year. Uh, and so you never had anybody accumulate power for this long a period of time. And with Augustus, the same person held supreme power in the state for nearly 45 years. I want to bring us to a little more recent history. You, you do go beyond just the, the the boundaries of what we see as the Roman Empire. Uh, you, you do get into the quote-unquote Dark Ages, though I guess I'm not sure if we're not allowed to use that term anymore, Dark Ages. Um, but, but you even get into the 20th century and, and somebody like Benito Mussolini, who, who I wanted to ask you about because, of course, Mussolini uh, would become dictator of, of of italy a fascist italy and fascist i mean there there is a connection to rome ancient rome uh there with the, the fasci and t tell me about tell me how somebody like benito mussolini fits into the story that you're telling it's absolutely fascinating because the city of rome that we visit now this kind of um, living museum to the roman imperial past is basically mussolini's creation um so Mussolini uh, very strongly believed that there was something wonderful in the Roman legacy that could be revitalized by the Italian fascist state. But Mussolini and some of the fascist planners actually believed that the city of Rome, in a sense, was the beating heart of this, and that the, the true power of what fascist Italy could become would be appreciated by people walking through this living monument to the ancient past. Uh, and so when we walk, when we think of visiting the Roman Forum, and we think of walking from the Colosseum down the Via de Foro, and, and we think of um, the Mausoleum of Augustus, uh, and even if, if people remember walking past the Forum, there are those three maps that show the growth of Rome. All of that is Mussolini's production. That road is something Mussolini built by tearing out a large number of neighborhoods. Um, and destroying the housing um, and digging down into the foundations to, to excavate and show the Roman past. Um, those maps are Mussolini's maps. Uh, and there was once a fourth map that showed Mussolini's fascist empire. Uh, those three maps are still up there. The fourth map has been taken down. But what that shows, I think, is... Um, Mussolini's vision of this revivified Rome where you can go and commune and experience that Roman past in a way that's still alive is something that on some level still resonates with us. I mean, there are still people who will go to the, uh, the shrine where Julius Caesar was cremated and still lay flowers there on March 15th. Um, and so the Ides of there's March. still a sense, the Ides of March, the day Caesar was killed. And so there is something still that Mussolini has, um, you know, that legacy is still kind of active in some ways that we interact with Rome. Um, and so I think when we, when we think of Mussolini, we also have to understand that Mussolini framed the violence done in places like Ethiopia as part of a Roman restoration. That's why there was a fourth map with Mussolini's fascist empire. Um, it was, in some ways, in Mussolini's view, very connected to this. And when the, the triumphal troops came back from 
um, Ethiopia, there was a Roman triumph of a sort where they marched through the Roman Forum. Um, and so Mussolini was very, very sensitive to what that space meant and how it could be used in a propagandistic way to uh, join a modern nationalist project to the glory of a very deep ancient past. Um, and it was, a, in some ways, a very, very successful propaganda move. That's fascinating. I, I, I knew that Mussolini wanted to make Rome great again, uh, but I never <laughs> realized the, the role in, in such things as the Forum and, and a lot of the historical sites that you get in Rome. It's, uh, it's really devastating when you read the reports that, um, that they, the fascist planners were issuing when they were doing this, uh, because some of the most interesting neighborhoods in 19th and early 20th century Rome were in the space between, say, uh, the Capitoline Museum and the Theater of Pompey. And he leveled it, just took it out. Um, the neighborhoods that are now, that were on top of what is now the Forum of Trajan, completely took them out. Um, the Mausoleum of Augustus was actually a concert hall. And Mussolini felt that you had to take everything that was modern out of it. Once they did that, it was a complete shell. There was nothing you could do with it. And the planners were sort of shocked by this. It's only now, I think it's it's like this year, um, that it's been reopened in some sort of form because a space that was functional and a part of the city that was living, Mussolini just eviscerated in the spirit of kind of recovering this lost Roman city. Um, and then the impact on the actual people in the city of Rome while this happened was devastating. I mean, this is this is a different way of thinking about the rhetoric of decline having victims. But there were, you know, thousands of people who lost their homes and their livelihoods because Mussolini wanted to restore ancient Rome in a modern space. What do you think it means then for us to be looking back at ancient Rome and trying to and it's what we're doing in this program, and this is not the only first time I've done this, not the first time I've done it with you, but I've done it with others as well, you know, trying to get some kind of context or a way of even understanding our current political moment. What, what do you think it then means for, you know, if, if Mussolini's doing this with the actual physical structures and, you know, trying to show people, what does it mean for us to be doing it? Why, 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 why do you do it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that it's interesting because um, the elephant in the room for all of these discussions is Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, um, which is a famous 18th century book that remains really, really influential. Um, but it's an, it is influential as an idea. I think a lot of the people who evoke the legacy of Rome now are doing it because they're aware of Gibbon's idea, but they haven't read all of the book and they certainly haven't read all of the Roman history behind it. But the decline of Rome is something that's used frequently, even now, in American political discussions um, to try to encapsulate the consequences of issues that we feel uncomfortable with. Uh, so just in the last 50 years, I mean, Ronald Reagan used this to rail against um, the, basically the nature of public education uh, and the idea of it indoctrinating people in non-traditional American virtues and behaviors. Um, it was used as a tool to rail against feminism, um, to say in the 70s, Phyllis Schlafly says, uh, in essence, Rome fell because women were liberated and we should not go in that same direction. Um, it was used in the 80s to attack uh, gay rights, to attack um, sexual behaviors that people were seeing as too liberal. Um, it was used in the early 2000s by people on the left to attack uh, military engagement abroad by the United States, in particular the, the war in Iraq. Um, and, you know, and we've seen it used even recently to attack things like immigration, where the story of what happens to Rome in the 5th century AD when Germanic invaders uh, cannot be um, controlled and integrated in the society, this is used as a way to critique immigration policies across Western Europe and the United States. All of these things are imprecise or inaccurate uses of Roman history. But because Rome is seen as this great thing that no longer is with us, you know, because the decline of Rome is real, the fall of Rome is real, 
this society that lasted for 2200 years is no longer here um it really represents a powerful thinking tool uh that a lot of people are misusing um and they're misusing it because it gives added heft to the claims about contemporary decline you know the the explanations for change that they're providing to people who are discomforted by those changes um rome offers an added heft to that because it seems to offer a way to validate the kinds of critiques they're making be it a critique of imperialism um a critique of overexploitation of resources a critique of um immigration policies or sexual behaviors uh, or public education uh, all of these critiques get added weight because you can plug in the example of the fall of rome and everyone who knows anything about rome knows that one fact rome fell uh, and so i think that when we see someone evoking the fall of rome in a contemporary environment we always need to be aware of why um in what way are they doing this why are they talking about it and what are they trying to get us to accept that we might otherwise find unacceptable because the rhetoric of decline very frequently um across all of roman history and contemporary history is a rhetoric of trying to come up with a way to convince people that some emergency measure they otherwise wouldn't accept is now acceptable and allowing the person making the claim to take an action that otherwise that person would be unable to take. Uh and so when we see it in our society, we need to understand this was a game that Sulla played, this was a game that Augustus played, this was a game that Roman emperors played. This was a game that in Roman history was used to justify all kinds of things up, up to and including murder and genocide. It's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous idea and it's something we need to be sensitive to when we see it in our world. And looking to Rome has been going on in this country all the way from the beginning. If you read the debates over the constitution, if you read the federalist papers, frequently you 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 would be forgiven if you thought what you were actually reading about was ancient Rome. Exactly. I mean the it's the strand of thinking um that takes us from the Roman Republic to our Republic is a very interesting one but um it's one that goes through Montesquieu it's one that in some ways goes through Flavio Biondo but it's also one that um deeply deeply influenced the founding fathers in the United States uh, to the point where Roman figures helped guide their conduct um Roman figures served as the kind of models that they patterned their political activities after um and roman figures even served as the cautionary tales when you wanted to attack something like the misbehavior of Aaron Burr uh it was really a deeply important conceptual framework for the founding fathers because they understood that the roman republic was actually something that was incredibly useful for a diverse society like the united states that was geographically expansive um but also something that included very 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 different colonies um and Rome's republic offered a way to bring all of those diverse interests and diffuse um diffuse activities together in a political system that could still expand you know that provided a representative democratic structure that could continue to grow and include more people as it developed um and so Rome for the founders was vitally important in shaping the project that they undertook that made the United States what it is which is fascinating because their idea and their understanding of roman history is very different than your understanding of roman history isn't it it is uh because for the founders and actually for this entire early modern um thought tradition about rome the peak of rome was the republic this is what montesquieu feels um this is what biondo feels this is what machiavelli feels this is what all of the roman thinkers up until gibbon felt um And so for them when Montesquieu writes the history of Rome this story is the republic is great why is the republic great okay now there's another 1500 years so how do we how does this thing survive for another 1500 years and basically the answer is the republic was so great it gives Rome this kind of head start and the world just kind of spends a long time catching up to it um i mean that's not a totally fair way to talk about what montesquieu was saying but um but but they were trying people, to figure out right i mean they were trying to figure out how do we keep the how do we how do we form a republic and keep it from falling apart exactly 
And that's what they're really interested in doing is, well, Rome was great. Can we replicate that? But can we keep it? Um, and that's, I think, the perpetual struggle that we're facing in the United States is, can we keep our republic? Can we keep what made it work? Um, and what can we do to be sure that the structural issues that could befall it uh, are things that we can either avoid or address? And for people looking at Roman history, that was always the question. What were those structural issues in the Republic? Um, you know, when the Founding Fathers are looking at Rome, they see that there are personalities who cause these problems. Um, and they focus on people like Catiline. Uh, and that's why they are so... The worst thing you could do was call someone a Catiline. You know, when, when Thomas Jefferson called Aaron Burr a Catiline, it's, you know, it's putting him kind of off to the side of polite behavior, polite conversation, polite activity. I mean, you just, if you're Catiline, you are not part of this system anymore. Um, and so it is a key component of it. You know, how do you keep it? So do historians today then not necessarily see the Republic as, as a golden era of Rome? I think a lot of historians now um, will acknowledge that what you have in the empire is a state that develops in a much more sophisticated fashion. Um, we think of the Republic and we look at the political rights enjoyed by Roman citizens and Roman senators, and those rights are more significant and much better protected under the Republic. But at the end of the Republic, Rome controls a whole lot of people who don't have those rights at all. They are subjects. They are exploited. Um, they do not have a ready means of appeal when someone is doing something to them, when the corruption in the government is making it impossible for them to, um, to function. And with the empire, Augustus fixes that. Huh. He gives them rights of appeal. And as the empire progresses, the empire moves increasingly in a way that extends citizenship to these people until in 212, everyone in the empire, from Britain to the Sudan, is a Roman citizen. And the government then has to figure out how you provide equal services, protections, and guarantees to everyone in that empire. And it undertakes that task in a really sophisticated way. And so by, uh, say, the year 300, a lot of the measures we have for what the Roman state is capable of doing puts it kind of on the level of a European state around the year 1800. Um, you know, Rome, the Roman government in 300 AD is minting more coins per year than any state will until the 19th century. Um, it has communication infrastructure and a tax structure and a sort of dynamic way of assessing obligations and providing resources to its citizens um, that early modern states would struggle to match. And so I think if you're looking at freedom for a select group of people in Italy, and select group of citizens in Italy, the Republic is better. Um, it's not better if you are in Greece, or if you're in North Africa, or if you're in Syria. Um, you are just a straight subject of the state, and it can do whatever it wants to you. Um, but the Roman Empire of the fourth century is actually a state that works for everyone. Now, we can argue about how well it works. Um, it certainly doesn't work on the level of a 21st century state. But it is much more functional than any state that, much more functional on a much larger scale than any state that came before it in the Mediterranean. And there's no one that's going to exceed it for another probably almost 1500 years. So I think uh, historians now would say, what are you looking for? You know, if you're looking for just po political freedom for the elites, the Republic is better. And in the 18th century, that probably is something that a lot of them are more concerned with than the actual sophistication of a state meeting the needs of all its citizens and including people fully um, in its you know, in its citizen body. Uh, but I think from a modern context, if we were to say, well, was the empire of the fourth century better than the Republic? I think on the average, we would probably say, yeah, it works better. It works better for more people than the Republic did. That's very interesting. And, and it makes me think about the, the term democratic and and how we use it differently than how we had democracy in the ancient world. And what I mean by that today, when we say 
well, that's democratic or not, or it's not democratic. We usually mean it in a sense of how expansive is it and is everyone being able to participate in this system? And we've sort of adopted that as using part of the term of what it means to be democratic, where if we look at the ancient democracies, ancient Greece, and then with Rome, with the Republic, with they had, you know, they had some elections, that the democracy then was for a very select few group of people. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the situation in Athens on one level is a pure democracy and on another level, not really. Um, if you were a male citizen in Athens, your vote counted equally. No one's vote counted more than anyone else. But if you're a woman, it you don't get to vote. If you're a child, you don't get to vote. If you are a slave or you're a uh, person who lives in Athens but isn't a citizen, you don't get to vote. And so it's a, a relatively small percentage of people in the city of Athens who get to vote. Um, in Rome, the situation also was, you know, women didn't get to vote, slaves didn't get to vote. Uh, Rome was willing to extend citizenship to people that it conquered and absorbed. And so there are a lot more Roman citizens than there ever were Athenian citizens. Um, and that citizen number keeps growing as the Republic keeps growing. Um, but that system was not designed so that everyone's vote counted equally. It was designed to, in essence, kind of rig the vote so that certain people's votes counted more. Um, and I had a, a wonderful discussion with a friend of mine, Paul Cartledge, who works on democracy, about whether Rome was a representative democracy. And uh, my comments was I use that term very expansively because I live in California and I live in a, a country that is, by its all, by every measure that we want to use, a representative democracy. But my vote for president and for Senate counts a small fraction of what somebody in Wyoming's vote for president and Senate counts as. And so if I live in a representative democracy, a system set up like that in the ancient world must also be a representative democracy. On that, he and I agree to disagree, but I think we have to understand that a representative democracy has a much lower bar. Um, you participate in decision-making, but sometimes that participation doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, and someone else's participation makes more of a difference. And a representative democracy is something, it's a system that can accommodate that. You know, if, if you show up and vote, even though you are in a voting group where really you, there's no hope that your vote will make much of a significant difference, um, you're still participating and that participation matters. Even if your, out, your voice in the outcome matters less. In an actual pure democracy, everybody's voice has to matter equally because it is the people collectively coming together as equals making a decision. Um, Rome never had that, never wanted that, but we don't have that either. Uh, and so I think when you're, when you're thinking about what Rome is as a representative democracy, you know, it's, it's something where the voices are filtered in such a way that the people Romans thought were more important had more of a voice than the people Romans thought were less important. Um, and that makes it interesting to think about the way that electoral votes in the Senate uh, are allocated here, because our Constitution very clearly thinks certain people are more important than others. Um, and we in California are not the most important. We, we just provide the, the bulk of the tax revenue. Edward J. Watts has been our guest. Edward J. Watts is the Alcaviades Vasiliades Endowed Chair and Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego. He has joined us for a conversation on his book. It's called The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Edward Watts, once again, I've enjoyed our conversation very much, and I thank you for taking this time to talk to us today. Thank you so much. This was wonderful.